You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. Would any sane nation make war on cotton? Without firing a gun, without drawing a sword, should they make war on us, we could bring the whole world to our feet. Cotton is king. The greatest strength of the South arises from the harmony of her political and social institutions. This harmony gives her a frame of society the best in the world, and an extent of political freedom combined with entire security such as no other people have ever enjoyed upon the face of the earth. In all social systems, there must be a class to do the menial duties, to perform the drudgery of life. That is, a class requiring but a low order of intellect and but little skill. Its requisites are vigor, docility, fidelity. Such a class you must have, or you would not have that other class, which leads progress, civilization, and refinement. It constitutes the very mudsill of society and of political government. And you might as well attempt to build a house in the air as to build either the one or the other, except on this mudsill. Fortunately for the South, she found a race adapted to that purpose to her hand. A race inferior to her own, but eminently qualified in temper, in vigor, in docility, in capacity to stand the climate, to answer all her purposes. We use them for our purpose and call them slaves. We found them slaves by the common consent of mankind, which, according to Cicero, lex nature est, the highest proof of what is nature's law. We are old-fashioned at the South, yet slave is a word discarded now by ears polite. I will not characterize that class at the North by that term, but you have it. It is there. It is everywhere. It is eternal." The senator from New York said yesterday that the whole world had abolished slavery. I the name, but not the thing. All the powers of the earth cannot abolish that. God only can do it when he repeals the fiat, the poor you always have with you. For the man who lives by daily labor and scarcely lives at that, and who has to put out his labor in the market and take the best he can get for it, in short, your whole hireling class of manual laborers and operatives, as you call them, are essentially slaves. The difference between us is that our slaves are hired for life and well compensated. There is no starvation, no begging, no want of employment among our people, and not too much employment either. Yours are hired by the day, not cared for, and scantily compensated, which may be proved in the most painful manner at any hour in any street of your large towns. Why, you meet more beggars in one day, in any single street of the city of New York, than you would meet in a lifetime in the whole South. We do not think that whites should be slaves either by law or necessity. Our slaves are black, of another and inferior race. The status in which we have placed them is an elevation. 
they are elevated from the condition in which God first created them by being made our slaves. None of that race on the whole face of the globe can be compared with the slaves of the South. They are happy, content, unaspiring, and utterly incapable from intellectual weakness ever to give us any trouble by their aspirations. Yours are white, of your own race. You are brothers of one blood. They are your equals in natural endowment of intellect, and they feel galled by their degradation. Our slaves do not vote. We give them no political power. Yours do vote, and being the majority, they are the depositories of all your political power. If they knew the tremendous secret that the ballot box is stronger than an army with banners and could combine, where would you be? Your society would be reconstructed, your government overthrown, your property divided, not as they have mistakenly attempted to initiate such proceedings by meetings in parks with arms in their hands, but by the quiet process of the ballot box. You have been making war upon us to our very hearthstones. How would you like for us to send lecturers and agitators north to teach these people this, to aid in combining, and to lead them? Transient and temporary causes have thus far been your preservation. The Great West has been open to your surplus population and your hordes of semi-barbarian immigrants who are crowding in year by year. They make a great movement, and you call it progress. The South have sustained you in great measure. You are our factors. You fetch and carry for us. $150 million of our money passes annually through your hands. Much of it sticks. All of it assists to keep your machinery together and in motion. Suppose we were to discharge you. Suppose we were to take our business out of your hands. We should consign you to anarchy and poverty. You complain of the rule of the South? That has been another cause that has preserved you. We have kept the government conservative to the great purposes of the Constitution. We have placed it and kept it upon the Constitution, and that has been the cause of your peace and prosperity. The senator from New York says that that is about to be at an end, that you intend to take the government from us, that it will pass from our hands into yours. Perhaps what he says is true. It may be. But do not forget it can never be forgotten, it is written on the brightest page of human history, that we, the slaveholders of the South, took our country in her infancy, and after ruling her for sixty of the seventy years of her existence, we surrendered her to you, without a stain upon her honor, boundless in prosperity, incalculable in her strength, the wonder and admiration of the world. Time will show what you will make of her, but no time can diminish our glory, or your responsibility. Hey everybody, CJ here, your one-man revolution, guerrilla scholar warrior, and renaissance man for the new dark age, continuing onward in our series on the history of American slavery. This is episode 98 of the Dangerous History Podcast on the antebellum period in slavery, the rise of the Cotton Kingdom. What I just read to you was an excerpt from a speech by Senator James Henry Hammond, a Democrat from South Carolina. The speech was given on the occasion of the admission of the state of Kansas, specifically under the pro-slavery Lecompton Constitution, which um, had been endorsed by President James Buchanan in the Congress, despite the fact that apparently more of the actual people in Kansas supported the anti-slavery alternative constitution. This was a speech given before the United States Senate on March 4, 1858. So just a few years prior to the Civil War, and in fact, the Civil War had actually started early out in Kansas, the so-called Bleeding Kansas, where pro-slavery and anti-slavery people were fighting it out in small-scale attacks. Now, you probably noticed them, but I'm going to go ahead and point out some key points you can glean from that little excerpt I read you from that speech. It illustrates many key points of the antebellum Southern defense of the so-called peculiar institution. This mixture of virulent racism with paternalism, varying degrees of sincerity, no doubt. This unfavorable comparison with poor but free labor in the North to the slaves in the South, pointing to the importance of staple crops, especially cotton, to the nation's economy. And 
he does make a few valid points in all of the, you know, horrible stuff that most of us would, I think, today vehemently reject. He does make a valid point when he kind of mentions that the South was paying an enormous amount of the federal tax bill at the time. This due to the effects of the tariff and the fact that the South did more, more importation of goods than the North. And there actually is at least some truth to his claim that many slaves may have been materially better off than a lot of the poorest people up north. There actually is some economic research that indicates there's some truth to this. It's not entirely made up. But, of course, that completely misses the mark of what's wrong with slavery, right? I mean, let's put it this way. If you had to guess, would you imagine that in 1858 there were lots of poor people, poor white people from the north, who were desperately trying to uh, slip into the south so that they could become slaves? of a plantation owner there and get better treatment. Somehow I've never come across any evidence that indicates that was happening anywhere. No, it seems that even desperately poor people in the North were quite happy to not be slaves, even though you could make a a case that at least in some instances, slaves had better food and, and medical care and so on. But I think it's pretty clear that You wouldn't want to be a slave, at least not most people. I mean, ask yourself this. Would you rather be a slave who was relatively, in material terms, well taken care of? Or would you rather be maybe a bit worse off, materially speaking, physically, but be freer and have at least the potential, at least the opportunity to improve your situation by your own merits and your own labor and the fruits of your own mind and so on? I think some people, if they were being honest, and I base this on a lot of people's political opinions and behavior, I think some people, if they were being brutally honest with themselves, would admit that they would choose to be a well-fed and well-taken-care-of slave rather than a person who's, you know, in a tough situation and has to figure out how to improve things. But I think a lot of people would not want to be a a well-taken-care-of slave and probably not very many regular listeners to this show. I don't think Uh, very many of you all would prefer to be a well-taken-care-of slave rather than a free person who maybe is in a tight spot in terms of finances and resources. In this episode, we'll talk a bit about how the so-called Cotton Kingdom that Senator Hammond was talking about came to be, starting with the Constitution itself. Not that slavery didn't already exist and plantation agriculture didn't already exist, as we've covered in previous episodes, but... The Constitution made sure that in various ways it continued in a political sense to exist as an institution. And then, as we'll see, some economic developments made sure that slavery stayed around due to profitability. But before we get more into that story, uh, I have several announcements. First, of course, got to give the Patreon shout outs to those who have stepped up to help support this show on a per episode donation basis over at patreon.com slash profcj. So big, big thank yous go out to Nicholas, to Stephen, and to Andy. Thank you all very much for stepping up to support the show over at Patreon. Remember, if you pledge to support the show at any amount per episode, I'll thank you by name in the next episode that I record after you've signed up. And if you've pledged to give at least a buck per show, and more is certainly welcome and appreciated, but if you've pledged to give at least one dollar per show, just, just a buck per episode, You'll have access to bonus episodes I put out there uh, periodically that are available nowhere else. And as always, go over to profcj.org slash donate if you're interested in seeing all the various ways you can help this show out financially. Also, I did a sort of a little blog post announcement on the website last week, but I want to give a shout out on the air as well. That, as probably most of you have already noticed, the show has new iTunes cover art and a, a cool new logo. And thanks very much to Raymond Guilford for coming up with that. Ray is a longtime listener and friend of the show, and he's also a graphic designer. And so I reached out to him when I was ready to upgrade the Dangerous History podcast appearance, and I'm really happy with what he came up with. I think it's great. Ray's website is currently under renovation, but when it's up and running, I'll be linking to it so that uh, any, any one of you in the audience who need any graphic design work done can maybe get in touch with him. Also, I want to point something out that, again, many of you may have noticed, maybe you didn't, the show's official title is now just The Dangerous History Podcast. In other words, I've deleted the Prof CJs from the, the title of the show. 
So it's changed in the logo, it's changed the, the show title in iTunes, and if you look up even at the header of the website, I've changed it to just the Dangerous History Podcast. And I've been thinking about making that change to the title for a while, and I decided that it would be a good place to do it as far as, you know, since I was having the cover art upgraded anyway, might as well go ahead and make that change along with it. I did it because I thought the title was too long and clunky, and I like the leaner, meaner, the Dangerous History Podcast a la carte better. And also, it seemed like it may have given the impression with the Prof CJ in there that I was trying to make an argument from authority, basically, and I really wasn't. I mean, the reason I used Prof CJ as the handle for this show was just it was an alias, almost sort of like an avatar that I used in a bunch of different venues online previously, you know, in, in comments and discussion boards and things like that. And so way back, like almost two years ago, when I decided to use that and even put it in the show title, that it would be, you know, kind of a, just a little nickname thing to put in there. And I really wasn't thinking like, oh, you're supposed to believe me because I have these titles and degrees. Uh, um, that's actually not me at all. I I don't even have any of my diplomas on my wall at work. I've got diplomas and some awards from the colleges that I, that I attended as a student and things like this. And I've got them like stuffed in a box somewhere in a closet. I don't even know where I've actually given some, some thought to getting some dummy diplomas printed to show that I earned my undergraduate degree from Hogwarts and my graduate degree from Miskatonic university, which any of you who read HP Lovecraft will know what I'm talking about. And putting those phony diplomas up on my office wall and just see how long it is for students to realize what they are. But I don't know, somehow laziness, I never got around to ordering those phony diplomas. So I don't take titles and formal degrees all that seriously. And I wasn't trying to base any authoritativeness I might have on any sort of institutional connection or anything like that. So it's out of the show title. It's just the Dangerous History Podcast. And please just call me CJ from now on, just plain old CJ. I'm actually a pretty humble guy, and I don't want people thinking that I'm more of an arrogant SOB than I actually am, because I don't think I really am. Anyway, last announcement before we jump into the rest of the show. It looks like there's a good chance, it's still not 100% certain on my end, but it looks like there's a pretty good chance that I'll be attending Porkfest in New Hampshire this summer, which I've never been to, by the way, and it's something I've long wanted to go to even before I started this podcast. But now that I have the podcast, you know, I have sort of something to promote and that sort of thing. And I have at least a little bit of a following. And I know that a fair amount of you all who are regular listeners do attend Porkfest. So I'll be excited to meet some listeners and, you know, meet you face to face and shake your hand and all that kind of cool stuff. Um, if you're attending as well. And if I do in fact make it, unfortunately, Due to the way my summer school teaching schedule is this year, and when the summer term ends, it looks like I'll only be able to make it for like the last three days of Porkfest. So unfortunately, can't make it for the whole thing. Wish I could. But it's a long trip. It's going to be two solid days of driving me crammed in the silver bullet to get there with, you know, my gear and whatever. It's uh, according to the to the Internet, I'm about a bit over 1300 miles from Lancaster, New Hampshire. So it'll be a bit of a drive. Who knows? Maybe I'll even get to record some mobile podcast episodes while I'm on that endless drive. But uh, Lou from Freedom Fiends has been kind enough to offer me the ability to crash at his campsite. So I'll be setting up like a little mini pup tent there or something like that if I do in fact go. So that's cool. I have a place at least to stay. And I may be, and I, I hope I am, I'm excited at the prospect, I may be doing a presentation, you know, giving some kind of a speech at Porkfest, although that is still not a done deal, it's still not finalized, but, I, but I've been in contact with some folks over um, who schedule things at the event, and it sounds like it's a, it's a good possibility. And some of you may know, I was asking on social media the other day for topic suggestions for a presentation, and I want to say thanks to all of you who made suggestions, although ultimately, after giving it more thought on my own, I decided to go with something that I came up with that it actually is not anything that anyone suggested. But I won't announce what that topic is until I'm certain that I'll definitely be getting a spot to give a presentation there. So we'll see. Since I'm only going to be there a few days and not the whole event, you know, I have to make sure that they can fit me in on one of the few days where I'll actually be able to be there, obviously. 
So stay tuned. I'll let you all know um, when that's nailed down. And then I'll also be letting you know what I'm going to be presenting on. But I think it's something that's pretty cool. And y'all are going to really like if you're going to be there. All right. So getting into the meat of this episode, getting back into antebellum slavery and the rise of the Cotton Kingdom. First, I just wanted to define the word antebellum. It's one of those words that you hear a lot and people use, and not everybody, I think, quite understands exactly what it means. They might have some sort of a vague idea of it. Oh, it means the Old South or something. And that's sort of right, but not not 100% like what it actually is. It's a Latin compound word. The prefix is anti, A-N-T-E, not I, but E. And then the suffix is bellum, B-E-L-L-U-M. And... What it translates as from the Latin, the, self, the prefix anti with an E, not with an I, not meaning against or anything. The prefix anti with an E means before, something that comes before something else. It's the same root as words like antecedent and antedate and so on. And then the suffix is bellum. Bellum means fight or war. It's the same root as words like belligerent and bellicose. And it's also, by the way, the original name for the 9mm pistol cartridge, which is still commonly called today the 9mm Luger. The actual original official name for that cartridge was 9mm Parabellum. Some people still call it that. And that Parabellum means for war. But anyway, antebellum, it literally means before war. And in the context of American history, specifically the history of the American South, what it really is referring to is before the Civil War. People might disagree a little bit on exactly when the antebellum period starts. Some people might start it in 1783 with American independence. Some might start it a few years later with the passage of the Constitution. Some might pick a nice round number and say 1800. But there's not really any disagreement on when the antebellum period ends, and that is 1861 with the outbreak of the big war, right? Obviously, if you get to the Civil War, then you're no longer antebellum, right? And that's considered like the real heart and defining era of slavery as a peculiarly Southern American institution. It's when slavery in America reached its height in every measurable way, numbers of slaves, geographic extent of slavery, production of slave agriculture in terms of you know, amount of goods and value of goods. It's when slavery reached its most defined, rigid, institutional, and, and traditional extent. It's when slavery was the most codified. And it's when it really dominated a lot of Southern politics and then national politics as well as an issue. So I want to talk briefly about slavery and the U.S. Constitution. You know, that magical parchment document with the calligraphy on it that's supposed to be what gives you all those rights and freedoms that you don't really have? Well, the original Constitution actually endorsed and supported slavery in a variety of ways. The Constitution that was drafted at Philadelphia in the summer of 1787, it never actually uses the word slavery, but it does support and endorse it in various ways, and it uses euphemisms like person held to service. Yeah, George Carlin would have a field day. Even in 1787, Americans were absolutely enthralled with euphemisms to disguise the brutality of reality using soft language. Now, one of the ways that the Constitution famously and euphemistically supported slavery was the so-called three-fifths clause regarding whether or not slaves would be counted in the census for the purposes of congressional representation which the South wanted them all counted and the North wanted none of them counted. And so the compromise was, well, we'll count three-fifths. The, fr the three-fifths clause can be found in Article 1, Section 2, and it reads as follows. Representatives and direct taxes shall be apportioned among the several states, which may be included within this union, according to their respective numbers, which shall be determined by adding to the whole number of free persons, including those bound to service for a term of years, and excluding Indians not taxed, three-fifths of all other persons. End quote. So when it says those bound to service for a term of years, it's talking about indentured servitude, which still did exist at the time of the writing of the Constitution. And the reference to the slaves is that last little bit that I read where it says three fifths of all other persons. 
So here's a section where the euphemism for slaves is all other persons. Isn't that interesting, though, that they actually use the word persons? One of the funny things I've run into repeatedly in researching for this series is that the South, in terms of its rhetoric and its legal institutions and definitions and so on, has a hard time figuring out what the heck to classify slaves as, because, of course, they're classified as chattel, as property. But then there are certain instances where it's desirable that they be treated as people. For example, in order to punish them for certain crimes, you have to acknowledge that they're people. But when it comes to other things, like do they have rights? Well, of course, they're not people. Well, here's the Constitution saying that they're persons, right? This meant that as per the Constitution, prior to the 13th Amendment being ratified in 1865, I believe, early 1865, this meant that three-fifths of a state's slave population would be counted in the census and thus would be used to apportion seats in the House of Representatives and thereby also determine the Electoral College votes of the various states as well. And so the net effect of this three-fifths clause was to artificially boost the political clout of Southern slave owners meant that they had representation in the federal government out of proportion to their actual numbers because their slaves were in part used to, you know, gain representatives, even though obviously their slaves wouldn't have any voting rights or anything like that. And this is a big part of why so many of the early presidents were Southerners, by the way. Now, another place where the Constitution talks about slavery, again, euphemistically, is in Article 1, Section 9. This is the part that says that Congress would not be able to ban the slave trade until 1808. Here's the text, and again, note the euphemistic lawyerly language. Quote, The migration or importation of such persons as any of the states now existing shall think proper to admit shall not be prohibited by the Congress prior to the year 1808, but a tax or duty may be imposed on such importation, not exceeding $10 for each person, end quote. And again, they're, they're calling them persons, right? But they don't actually get any human rights. And again, this, this euphemism, I mean, it's, it's almost sickening. Migration or importation of such persons as any states now existing shall think proper to admit. Holy crap. That's a lot more space than just saying the slave trade. But of course, you know, we don't want to say anything that might sound offensive, right? You almost wouldn't know they were talking about the slave trade. It almost kind of sounds like they're talking about immigration in general, but of course they're not. By the way, the Congress did pass a ban on the slave trade on January 1st, 1808, the first day they could do so constitutionally. And that's all well and good. And some people did uh, prior to that ban and around the time it was passed, they thought that would lead to the gradual death of slavery. But of course, for a variety of reasons, it would not. And then, of course, Article 4, Section 2 of the Constitution contains the Fugitive Slave Clause, which reads, quote, no person held to service or labor in one state under the laws thereof, escaping into another shall, in consequence of any law or regulation therein, be discharged from such service or labor, but shall be delivered up on claim of the party to whom such service or labor is due. End quote. Holy cow, that's a mangled, lawyerly, grammatical atrocity of a sentence. It's hard to even follow that thing. Notice how it's even euphemistic regarding the owner. The slave, of course, isn't a slave, but a person held to service or labor. And the owner isn't even described as an owner, but rather the party to whom such service or labor is due. This clause and the various federal fugitive slave acts used to enforce it between the implementation of the Constitution and then the Civil War meant that the federal government, whose Money and resources were extracted from both slave-owning and non-slave-owning Americans, and there were much more of the latter, much more of the non-slave owners, even in the South. The federal government would be significantly involved in protecting, upholding, and subsidizing the institution of slavery. This calls back to my point I've mentioned before in this series that slavery cannot exist on a large scale for a long period of time without the support and the enforcement of a powerful state and all the apparatus that comes with that. And even Howard Zinn talks about, in People's History of the United States, talks about the degree to which the federal government was hugely involved in various ways in upholding the institution of slavery for many years. 
perhaps if I remember, I'll throw in a quote from him uh, in a future episode on that topic. I don't have one handy at the moment, though. The Constitution's original verbiage contained all kinds of supports of slavery in euphemistic, twisted, lawyerly language. And this is the document that we are supposed to consider as this wonderful, nearly perfect, divinely inspired piece of scripture. And we're supposed to think that the men who wrote it and passed it were some sort of demigods. Well, let me use a little bit of euphemistic language of my own. I'm going to call male cattle feces on that. Well, I want to talk a little bit about some trends and patterns and so on that you can see over the course of the antebellum period as far as slavery's development. They're kind of a broad overview. And we might occasionally note some exceptions and things like that, too. But looking at the really big picture, we see the end of the slave trade and then not too long thereafter, in most cases, of slavery itself in most parts of the New World or the Western Hemisphere. And we'll talk more in a future episode about comparisons of other parts of the New World, how they phased out slavery and so on, how they compare to the Americans in that regard. But the end of slavery came about in most parts of the New World prior to 1850. By the year 1850, in the Western Hemisphere, as far as I know, only the Southern American states, as well as Brazil, Cuba, and Puerto Rico, still had slavery in them as a legal institution. Britain abolished it throughout their empire, which of course included their Caribbean sugar islands in the 1830s. And in most of Latin America, what you find is that typically countries there would abolish it soon or immediately after getting their independence from Spain. So we'll talk more about this global context and comparisons in the future, but understand that's going on at the same time that slavery is actually expanding in the United States. It's actually disappearing in most other parts of the New World, with a few exceptions. Despite the ending of the slave trade in the United States in 1808, massive growth in the slave population overall occurred in the U.S., from just under 700,000 slaves in the first U.S. census in 1790 to about 1.2 million slaves by 1810, which was the first census taken right after the end of the slave trade, to approximately 4 million slaves by the eve of the Civil War, the end of the antebellum period. And again, some people thought that if you just ended the importation of African slaves, this would lead to a gradual but sort of automatic end for American slavery. But this, in fact, proved dead wrong. The southern U.S. actually ended up producing the largest slave population in the New World by the end of the antebellum period. And they did so mostly through natural population increase after the end of the slave trade. Now, looking at the South as a whole... In the antebellum period, slaves comprised about a third of the overall population. But remember, this is not evenly distributed throughout the, the South as a whole. Remember that slaves numerically are mostly concentrated in the areas that are the most productive of the most profitable staple crops. There tended to be a lot fewer slaves in the so-called border states of Delaware, Missouri, and, and uh, Maryland. And there also tended to be very few slaves in most of the mountain and hill regions of sort of southern Appalachia. On a state-by-state -state basis, looking at slaves as a percentage of the population, it ranged widely from slaves being less than 2% of the population in Delaware in the antebellum period to being over 50% in South Carolina. Now, I've mentioned before paternalism, and I'm sure we'll come back to it again in this series. Paternalist ideology among slave owners in the American South was increasing throughout the antebellum period. But this was a two-edged sword. On the one hand, paternalist ideology meant that, in a lot of measurable ways, the physical conditions for most slaves actually did improve over the course of the antebellum period. And there, there is historical evidence to validate this. But the flip side is, you know, on the other hand, in the words of historian Peter Colchin, quote, Slave owners renewed their efforts to promote slave dependence and docility, sharply curtailed manumissions, and imposed new restrictions on the actions of both slaves and free blacks. Antebellum Southern slavery became both more rigid and more paternalistic. In the process, it also became increasingly distinctive. End quote. And historian David Brian Davis writes, quote, 
in terms of material standard of living, the slaves in the 19th century American South were clearly far better off than most slaves and forced labor in history. Yet, they were victims of one of the most oppressive slave systems ever known in terms of the rate of manumission, racial discrimination, and psychological oppression. End quote. So you have this increasing paternalism leading to better conditions and better provisions and so on for slaves. On the other hand, there's a simultaneous increase in control, surveillance, and so on. Now, there were a variety of experiences lived by slaves throughout the antebellum period, and the differences depended on a whole host of variables, including but not limited to things like geographical region, uh, whether you're in a rural or more urban area, most slaves lived in rural areas, but some did still live in, in urban areas. And if you're talking about a slave in a rural area, the question is also, are they on a small farm or a large plantation or something sort of in between? Other variables would be things like whether one is supervised by an overseer or supervised directly by one's owner, et cetera, et cetera. And there are lots of other things going on as well. You know, what crops specifically are you involved with if you are, like most slaves, a field laborer? And by the way, in a few areas, small numbers of slaves of the overall slave population were owned by free blacks and persons of color, you know, mulattoes, as they were often called back then. This was... Most numerous, I believe, in areas of Louisiana, where due to the French influence, they had this more kind of nuanced view of race. Doesn't mean that slavery wasn't still highly oppressive there. It was. And it doesn't mean there wasn't still racial discrimination of various types. There was. But there was a little bit more leeway in some parts of Louisiana to consider people who were mulattoes, you know, mixed race, to be above those who were more pure African ancestry. And you actually can find a few examples in Louisiana in the antebellum period of major planters who owned, you know, potentially hundreds of slaves who are actually persons of color, who are mulattoes. You can also find small numbers of southern Indians who owned slaves, including members of the Cherokee, Chickasaw, and Creek tribes, many of them over time, at least to some degree, assimilated to the white culture around them, which was a southern culture. And so some of them did eventually own slaves if they were prosperous. But keep in mind, looking at the South as a whole, the majority of Southern white people, approximately 75% of them actually, did not own any slaves and did not come from a family that owned slaves. Slaves were expensive. Most people could not afford them. And a majority of those who did own slaves owned fewer than five. Overall, estimates are that only about 7% or less of white Southerners in the antebellum period were actually what would be considered planters, meaning those who owned many slaves and a large piece of land. By far, most white Southerners were small yeoman farmers. However, because of their wealth and their social status, big planters or plantation owners dominated Southern politics, and they used race very effectively as an issue to keep the support of poorer whites and to inculcate in the poor whites a habit, a habit of deference to the wealthy slave-owning elite in the South. And this is a theme we'll probably come back to repeatedly. It's already come up a few times. But the ways that the Southern elite is able to use race as a tool by which to divide poor whites from blacks, including slaves and free blacks, a very effective divide-and-conquer political tactic. In general, in the South, there were two different terms used to describe Southerners who owned a piece of agricultural land, and the difference in terminology doesn't reflect differences in what crops they were producing, but instead it shows a difference in the size of the land holding they had and the size of their labor force. So, in general, in the South, you find those who owned small or modest-sized properties and who owned either few slaves or no slaves whatsoever, which, again, by the way, the vast majority of white Southerners, these people are generally referred to as farmers. By contrast, planter was a term used to describe someone who owned a large chunk of land and a larger number of slaves. Now, there's no exact definition that everybody agreed on everywhere. So the term planter is typically used to refer to somebody who owns 20 or more slaves. Although sometimes 
those who owned, say, between 10 and 20 slaves might be referred to as small planters. Also keep in mind that this dividing line, this differentiation between who's a quote-unquote farmer and who's a quote-unquote planter is also relative to time and place and sort of what's going on around you. So in other words, if you're in a part of the South, such as, say, Louisiana or coastal South Carolina or some parts of Mississippi, where very large plantations are relatively common, they're sort of the norm, in a setting like that to qualify as a planter, one might actually need to own more slaves than someone in a setting where smaller holdings and smaller um, slave populations are the norm. So it's all kind of relative to your local area, too, which, which thing you get labeled with. As of 1860, which would be the end of the antebellum period, less than 3% of white Southerners owned 50 or more slaves, and only about 25% of Southern slaves lived on plantations of that size, of 50 or more slaves. So understand, when you see in cinema and in literature and in historical presentations, when you see all of this coverage of what things were like on an enormous plantation of you know, 100 or 200 or more slaves, that that's actually not the experience of what most slaves in the antebellum period would have lived. They would have lived on much more small or medium-sized estates with much smaller numbers of slaves. Geographically, the largest plantations were mostly in the lower Mississippi Valley. We're talking Louisiana, Mississippi, like that. And also some of the coastal areas of Georgia and South Carolina. The really large plantations, the largest, were those that grew sugar and rice, although some cotton plantations could be quite large as well. One of the things that made American slavery different from how slavery played out and evolved in other areas of the New World was the lower instance of absentee ownership. In many parts of the Caribbean and Latin America and Brazil, oftentimes those who owned plantations were hardly ever there. Oftentimes they would not even regularly reside on their plantation. American slave owners were much more likely to do so. American slave owners had, as Peter Colchin puts it, a resident mentality and strong ties to place that was different than what plantation owners would have had in other parts of the New World. It is true, though, even though they were much less common in America than they were in other parts of the New World that had slavery, that overseers not, were not as common in America overall. However, on large plantations, they were employed. Overseers, if you don't know that term, means somebody who doesn't actually own the slaves, but who supervises them, disciplines them, etc., usually in sort of small uh, groups or gangs. The, the slaves would be in gangs, not the overseers. You find in the historical record that overseers frequently get a bad rap from everybody, usually have a reputation for being abusive, unfair, and so on. And the historical evidence indicates that this is often justified. Many owners of slaves who employed overseers to oversee them constantly express dissatisfaction with their overseers. And some of the owners of slaves would even encourage their slaves, especially ones that they trusted, to sort of rat on them if their overseer was abusive or otherwise misbehaved. So it's weird. In, this, in some of these situations, you've got the white owner of the slaves encouraging some of his black slaves to, to narc on his white overseer to let him know if he's not you know, doing things right. Oftentimes in these situations, slaves saw their masters, their actual owners, as far more benevolent people than their overseers, the people who actually on a day-to-day -day basis are supervising them and disciplining them. And so overseers, they get this bad rap from everybody. They get the bad rap from the slaves themselves and a bad rap from their employers who actually own the slaves in a lot of cases. And looking at it from the overseer's perspective, they often probably felt like they just couldn't win no matter what they did. It was really a thankless job and, you know, not one that a, that a really humane moral person would probably want to do anyway. But if an overseer is too lenient, their employer might complain that they're not getting enough productivity out of the slaves. But if they're too much of a disciplinarian, too much of a, literally a slave driver, their employer might complain that they're too abusive and draconian. So being an overseer was really a thankless job. And in a way, I don't feel bad for them because it's a, it's a terrible thing to do for a living. But anyway, 
approximately three quarters of Southern slaves worked primarily as field hands, as laborers, you know, agricultural laborers, while another quarter had other things as their primary jobs. Being a field hand meant that one's workload would vary wildly depending on the season, and so as a result, a lot of field hands would do some other things as well, especially on the smaller plantations where there wasn't as much ability to specialize amongst the slaves. Traditionally, slaves who were artisans and also, you know, house slaves, house servants, the slaves who are sort of like the butlers and the cooks for the white people, traditionally they've often been seen as sort of an aristocracy amongst the slave population, sort of a a privileged, elite, stratified group. And historians debate how true and how deep this distinction really was, but it seems to have been a real thing for sure. And it it's something that Peter Colchin refers to as, quote, the existence of tensions resulting from stratification among slaves, end quote. And it's true that there were some perks to being one of these slaves who did something other than field labor. Working conditions and various forms of material privileges and things oftentimes did accrue to highly skilled slaves and to house servants as well. But there's downsides to being one of these types of slaves as well. I mean, your day-to-day working conditions might be more comfortable and you might get other perks, but it means you're in a lot more direct contact with your master and possibly also their family. And the downside of this is there can be a lot more surveillance of you than if you were a simple field hand, and also a lot more meddling on the part of your master and possibly his family into your life, your behavior, etc. And in the case of if you have a master who's a bit nuts in a bad way, it might mean that you're the guy who happens to be standing around when he loses his temper and feels that he wants to hit something. And so we do have some reports of house slaves and people like that sometimes bearing the brunt of their master's anger where the field hands are, you know, off in the field doing something, they're not around to be, for lack of a better term, the whipping boy. I mean, by contrast, if you're a simple field hand, your working conditions are certainly going to be likely less comfortable, but you're also not nearly as much under surveillance and, you know, subject to the whims of your master moment to moment, etc. And in addition to that downside, other slaves, you know, typical field hand slaves tended to, from what we can tell, oftentimes dislike, mistrust, and even in a way look down on the so-called slave aristocracy of skilled slaves and, and those who were house servants. Most slaves, if they looked up to anybody, they would look up to the slaves who served the interests of other slaves. So they wouldn't have respect for a house slave, but they would have respect for somebody like a preacher, a slave who was a preacher, or a slave who was an entertainer or something like that. But there's dispute among historians, like I said, as as far as how far these divisions and stratifications within the slave population really went. So, for example, historian Peter Colchin, after describing this sort of hierarchy and how it worked, then argues that in his opinion, this this stratification and its effects on slave relationships amongst themselves has been overplayed or overemphasized in a lot of the historiography. He says that in his opinion, stratification, while real, was ultimately limited because most American slaves, in fact, lived on modest-sized farms and plantations where there wasn't really as much ability to evolve a slave aristocracy. And also because slaves who did different jobs than field hand still at the end of the day had far more in common with other slaves who were field hands, then they had differences between them. And because the laws and the customs and things like that limited the degree of privilege that the so-called slave elite or aristocracy could really enjoy. So the typical slave is a simple field hand, but there are exceptions. There are skilled artisans employed in some of the southern cities and large towns who are slaves. There are, of course, the house slaves. And there are even other exceptions. There was, for example, one slave who was a ship captain on the Mississippi River who became very successful. And even though he was a slave, he was like an employer in his own right. He hired people to work on his ships and he even had white paid laborers who worked for him. So there were certainly exceptions to the typical pattern, but the typical pattern is the typical pattern for a reason. Now, I want to talk a bit about what causes this cotton kingdom to come about. The so-called cotton kingdom, right? Cotton is king. Where did this come from? Because as of the American Revolution, cotton was really not a big deal in the grand scheme of America's economy, even of the South. 
But starting in the early 19th century, cotton, especially what was called short staple cotton, came to dominate the Southern economy and thus became a major aspect of the U.S. economy overall as well. It was America's number one export for a long, long time. And it was the rise to dominance of cotton that prevented slavery from doing what a lot of people, including Thomas Jefferson, thought and hoped would actually happen to slavery, which is it sort of fades out over time. Cotton prevents that because it it gives slavery an economic shot in the arm, and thus a new lease on life, economically speaking. The gradual decline of slavery looked possible around the time period of the American Revolution and right in the aftermath of it. Looked like it might happen because slavery was becoming for a while less profitable due to the lower profitability of things like tobacco. But cotton just changes it around almost overnight. Now, in the antebellum period, even though cotton became king of the southern economy, it was by no means the only crop in the south. In fact, if you go by acreage, more, a- more acreage in the south was actually planted with corn than with cotton. But of course, corn was not the big money-making staple. It was often being produced for local consumption. And of course, we should point out that tobacco and rice still dominated the coastal areas of the Chesapeake and South Carolina, respectively, and that there were a few pockets of the South, such as Louisiana and a couple little corners of Florida, where there was some sugar agriculture going on. But cotton, though, is known as the king for a reason. As far as the economy went in the antebellum period in the South, cotton really was king. Let me just give you a few brief figures on annual cotton production to illustrate this. In the United States in 1790, about 3,000 bales of cotton were produced. In 1810, just 20 years later, almost 180,000 bales. So in 20 years, it increased by a factor of 60. And then 50 years later, on the eve of the Civil War, 1860, end of the antebellum era, more than 4 million bales of cotton were produced by the American South. Now, a lot of this cotton was exported, the majority of it actually, and the lion's share of that went to Great Britain. Now, why did this rise to dominance of cotton occur, and why did it happen when it did? Well, a variety of factors came together, sort of a perfect storm of things to make it a big deal. And it's a, you know, historical tragedy. These factors came along when they did, because they are largely what prevented slavery from maybe fading off gradually as an institution due to low profitability. Now, a huge factor in cotton rising to the uh, the throne, if you will, was the cotton gin invented by the Yankee inventor Eli Whitney, who was living in the South for a while, which was patented in 1793. Cotton, if you don't know, especially the so-called short staple cotton, which is what grows in most of the South, once it's harvested, in order to be prepared to be shipped off to some textile mill, you have to undergo a very time and labor-consuming process of removing the seeds or the husks of cotton, and this process limited its profitability before the cotton gin came along. Now, there was a type of cotton that was easy, relatively easy and quick to deal with, you know, by hand that existed. It was known as long staple or sea island cotton. It's easier to clean and get all the seeds out. But the problem was it really could only grow in a few coastal areas of the South. And that was it. In other words, it couldn't produce enormous amounts to feed the textile mills of industrializing Britain and a little bit later, the American Northeast. So there's this other type of cotton, short staple cotton that can grow in a lot more parts of the South. But again, the problem was it's a lot harder to get out all the seeds and husks and get it ready to to sell to a factory somewhere. So the cotton gin solved this problem. It was an ingenious invention that was a hand crank device that pulled the strands of cotton through a metal mesh, through sort of like a wire mesh. And this strained it and allowed you to quickly and efficiently remove the husks from the strands, and thus the cotton is ready to be sold and shipped off to England or whatever. So the one factor that had limited cotton production, this time-consuming process of getting the stuff, getting the seeds and husks out of the cotton, has been solved. And then the fact that this happened at the same time that the Industrial Revolution was getting fully underway in England and just a little bit later in the northern U.S., was a perfect storm because in the case of both England and the northern U.S., 
as they industrialized, their number one early industries were textiles or making cloth. So it means that you've got a solution to the supply problem of cotton coming along at the very time where there is basically endless demand for cotton to feed the factories in England and the North. So again, this coming together of these factors at the same time led to slavery becoming far more profitable than it had been in a while. And this also combined with another factor going on at the same time, and that is westward expansion of American territory in general. And these things, westward expansion of American borders combined with Industrial Revolution and the cotton gin meant that not only would slavery continue to exist, but it would spread. That slavery and plantation agriculture on a massive scale would spread down into the so-called Gulf states, as they became known, and the territories in what was called for a while the Southwest and eventually known as the Old Southwest, places like Mississippi and Louisiana and East Texas. And cotton would get a huge foothold in the lower Mississippi Valley, especially. Now, this spread of slavery into the Old Southwest caused a huge internal or domestic slave trade to take place in America, where slaves were increasingly moved westward, often uh, with their owner, but not always. You know, in some cases, a slave owner would himself move uh, westward to Mississippi or someplace like that and would bring his slaves with them. But in some cases, he would simply sell his slaves and have them uh, shipped out there. So there's an overall massive shift of the slave population increasingly southward and westward as the antebellum period unfolded from places like the Chesapeake, where slavery was not as profitable as it used to be, to places like Louisiana and Mississippi, where it was booming. Estimates are that perhaps as many as a million slaves were moved westward during the antebellum era. And evidence indicates that this experience was not surprisingly, it's very understandable, often a terrible trauma for the slaves who went west. Oftentimes, I mean, you've got the normal trauma of being moved into a new location and having to deal with all of that, but then you also have the fact that this is not being done voluntarily on your part, and it's even worse if your family is being split up because you're being shipped to different plantations out west, and then you've got the problem of also now, in a lot of cases, having to deal with a new master and figure all that out. So we know this was traumatic for many of the slaves of the East. It was something they feared. We know they feared it because we do have some slave narratives that talk about it. And we also know that they feared it and they saw it as a horrible thing because it was something that slave owners in the East would sometimes use in the antebellum period as a threat of punishment for their slaves. Hey, if you don't stop giving me problems, I'll just sell you to somebody out, you know, in Louisiana or Mississippi, and that'll be that. And it was considered quite a real threat by the slaves who were threatened with this punishment. Historians still debate amongst themselves over how much, you know, what proportions of those slaves who moved west were in fact moved along with their existing owners versus what proportion of them were simply sold and sent westward to what would be to them brand new masters. So that's probably going to make things worse from the standpoint of the slave's perspective, is to be sold to a completely new master. You know, oftentimes it means the breaking up of your family because slave families were not recognized at all in the Southern legal system, Southern laws generally. There were conscientious owners who tried to keep families intact, but at the end of the day, even a conscientious, well-meaning owner who's not trying to break up families might still end up in a situation where, because of debts or other financial problems, he has to sell off his slaves to different people. And then, of course, there were plenty of masters who didn't give a crap anyway, right, who saw slaves as just passive property and wouldn't lose a, a second sleep worrying about breaking up a slave family. So some historians who've studied things have come to the conclusion that most slaves who went west actually went west with their existing master. Other historians doubt that and, and say no, that in fact, selling off to new masters that were already out west was uh, more common. So I'm not taking a stand on it. It's not my area of, of expertise, just pointing out that there is disagreement on that issue. Now, the westward expansion of cotton planting also meant a rise in the value of slaves and a concurrent rise in the price of slaves who were sold. Cotton flourished best in the so-called Deep South, 
and so very quickly took over large parts of Georgia and South Carolina, and then spread from there to places such as Alabama, Mississippi, and Louisiana, and to a lesser extent, because these were much less populated places at the time, to parts of Florida, Arkansas, and Texas. By the eve of the Civil War, just four states, Georgia, Alabama, Mississippi, and Louisiana combined, produced nearly 80% or four-fifths of all of America's cotton production. And even all the way back in 1820, not that long into the antebellum period, the United States had three times as many slaves living in it in 1820 as it had at the start of the American Revolution, not 50 years earlier. This is, by the way, one of the many things that calls into question just how much independence really led to an overall increase in freedom. The growth of the Cotton Kingdom really moved a lot of the economic and political pull of the South westward and southward. And this had cultural and economic and political effects. You can even see it in the lead up, immediate lead up to the Civil War. So just to point out, the upper South states, such as Virginia, were the last states to secede and join the Confederacy of those that did in 1861. The first states to secede and set up the Confederate states, the ones that did so before Fort Sumter and before Lincoln even took office, were all of the Deep South states. South Carolina, Georgia, Florida, Alabama, Mississippi, Louisiana, Texas. Those were the first Confederate states. Those were also the places where cotton had really become king. And it was only after Fort Sumter that the Upper South states, like Virginia and Tennessee and so on, joined the Confederacy. And this growth of the Cotton Kingdom had just influences on the South in every dimension imaginable. And in future episodes, I'll get into some of those. It kept the South from keeping up with the North in a variety of areas, such as economic development and innovation, things like manufacturing, transportation infrastructure. The South is behind in everything. And by keeping slavery alive and profitable as an institution, the rise of the Cotton Kingdom would keep the South culturally and politically separate from the rest of the country, with the ultimate results that we all know. Now, I'll conclude this episode with a short excerpt from Kenneth Stamp's book, The Peculiar Institution, which is a little over 50 years old and yet was, as far as I know, one of the first major historical works, you know, serious scholarly works on slavery that wasn't in some way racist, that didn't actually treat slavery as really a benevolent institution. That might be hard for you to believe that it took until the early 60s for historians on slavery to not treat it as, well, you know, it was actually kind of good for the blacks, you know, they kind of needed something like that, etc. So here's Kenneth Stamp writing about what had happened with slavery even by the 1830s, kind of the middle of the antebellum period. Quote, By the 1830s, the fateful decision had been made. Slavery, now an integral part of the Southern way of life, was to be preserved, not as a transitory evil, an unfortunate legacy of the past, but as a permanent institution, a positive good. To think of abolition was an idle dream. Now, even native Southerners criticized the peculiar institution at their peril. Finally, by the 1830s, slavery had assumed the rigidity of an entrenched institution. It no longer had the plasticity, the capacity to modify its shape that it had in the colonial period. Slavery had crystallized. Its form was fixed. In 1860, the peculiar institution was almost precisely what it had been 30 years before. If anything, the chains of bondage were strengthened, not weakened, in this antebellum period. In the hardened pattern of Southern law and custom, the twin functions of the slaves were now clearly defined. They were to labor diligently and breed prolifically for the comfort of their white masters. End quote. In upcoming episodes in this series, we'll look in a lot more detail at many different aspects of this topic, including the cultural and social dimensions of slavery, the politics and economics of slavery. We'll look at slave resistance and rebellion. We'll take a brief look at the global context, meaning comparing the U.S. experience with slavery and with 
ending it, with phasing it out with other places in the New World and the Western Hemisphere. So, And we'll also look at how slavery ended and its effects and legacy. And we'll also see if we can glean any lessons for us today in a world where this particular type of slavery is, at least for the most part, extinct. Thank you for listening to the Dangerous History Podcast. Please check out the website, profcj.org. That's profcj.org. There you can find show notes for all the episodes, links, and other information. You can also email subscribe to the website by putting in your email in the little subscribe box off to the side there. And if you do that, you'll get an email notification every time something new is posted at the website. I promise you won't get any spam or anything uh, from me if you sign up there. You'll just get an announcement every time something new is posted on the website, which most of the time means a new episode, but occasionally is another sort of announcement or what have you. Please feel free to contact me with questions, comments, or other things. The email address is profcj at profcj.org. That's profcj at profcj.org. You can also connect with the show and follow it on social media, like us on Facebook, follow on Twitter, and you can find the show in podcast venues such as iTunes and Stitcher. You can subscribe there. Uh, By subscribing in iTunes, you'll help the show rise in the iTunes charts, and of course, that will help grow the show's audience. If you like this show and want to see it continue to keep going and to grow and to improve, there are a lot of ways you can help support it. One is simply to spread the word about the Dangerous History podcast to anyone you think might appreciate it. You can also help spread the word by leaving ratings and reviews in podcast venues like iTunes and Stitcher. And of course, we very much need and appreciate financial support. You can go to profcj.org donate to see a whole bunch of different ways that you would help the show out financially. One, of course, is patreon.com profcj, where if you pledge to help out the show with a donation of at least $1 per episode, Remember, not only will I thank you by name in the next episode that I make, but you'll also have access to bonus episodes that I put there periodically that are available nowhere else. You can also make one-time or recurring donations via PayPal at profcj.org donate, and I have a Bitcoin address if you want to donate that way. And of course, a final way you can help out the show financially is when you do your Amazon shopping, go to Amazon through any of my affiliate Amazon links on my website. And if you do that, The Dangerous History Podcast will get a small cut, a little commission, from anything you purchase at no additional cost to you. Thanks again for listening. This has been another episode of the Dangerous History Podcast, helping you learn the past so you can understand the present and prepare for the future.